Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com. Hello and welcome to Alpha Chat, FC Alphaville's now nearly weekly podcast. I'm Isabella Kaminska in Geneva, and today we're joined by Annette Edmati, who is Professor of Finance and Economics at Stanford Graduate School of Business and co-author of Banker's New Clothes, What's Wrong with Banking and What to Do About It. And we're also joined in London by Francis Coppola, not the director of the Godfather series, but a former banker who's now one of the blogosphere's most prominent independent banking commentators. So we're going to talk about the wonderful topic of making a better banking system and more specifically the subject of bank capital and why banks need more of it, Um, much more at least than most regulators currently think. And this is because even now, five years after the crisis, many people who should know better perhaps still don't really understand what causes fragility in the banking sector. Speaking of which, we picked up on a great story last week, um, which involved everybody's favorite Secretary of State for Business, Innovation and Skills, Vince Cable. He likened the Bank of England behaving like a capital Taliban, who teased under the impression that more capital was stopping banks from lending. I think Anat will have something to say on that matter, so I thought um, I'd take it take it over to you on this. Uh, is this the sort of comment that makes you shudder and want to cry? When people say things, you often sort of say, well, what actually do they mean that it will, in, and if so, why will it stop them from lending? So it's like, okay, so the first uh, confusion that might lead people to say something like that is they don't understand what the words mean. So that's kind of the, uh, the first possibility if you're trying to say, okay, why did he say that? Uh, well, he might think, like many do seem to think, that capital is actually on the other side of the balance sheet, that it's like cash reserve and like um, to a rainy day fund, some idle cash. So oftentimes you'd hear people say, oh, it just sucks money out of the economy and sits idle and not used productively and all of that. That's just absolute nonsense if that's what this is about. There's, we're not talking about what they do with money. We didn't stop them quite uh, from doing uh, anything like lending with the money. We're talking about how they raise the money, how they find the money, how they fund the, whatever they do. And so we're talking about the funding mix. And in the economy, there are lots of companies that invest in lots of risky things. And there's no particular uh, reason that companies that are funded with equity or a lot more equity can't invest. Lots of companies invest with equity and banks can too. They just, what they choose to do or how they choose to fund, that's where it starts being a problem. You always make a, a nice comment, you know, that when it comes to banks and equity, it's really the case of anything but equity. Uh, why is that? Well, 
one of the reasons that it seems to be a very superficial reason is this incredible fixation in banking on return on equity. So if so equity is just bad because it's in a denominator of this ROE. So as I said, the smallest it can be, then the bigger kind of that ROE. Now return on equity, I mean, to unpack that fallacy is really has a few logical steps, which is sometimes seems to be too much to say in one sentence as a mouthful. Because return on equity, of course, is something that just you know, happens every period or every year or whenever you measure and depends how you measure returns. What does it even mean? Of course, it fluctuates because they take risks. So in a given period, you measure something and you say, you know, I want this return or that return. Or I'm targeting this return or that return. Or I'm getting this return or that return on average. So what does it even mean to say, oh, I'm, I'm, I want this return. I deserve this return or, or whatever. Well, I mean, the, the, the fixation is really staggering, but it does seem to uh, and it's all completely fallacious, but and, and completely inappropriate and actually dangerous. But it seems to color the anything but equity. The thing is that actually in the economics of it, they need equity. Only equity will straighten out more things, will absorb losses most reliably, and will remove a lot more distortions in terms of their views about risk and kind of straighten out the upside and the downside of the risk. Whenever there's some security that's above equity, call any hybrid, preferred, cocos, whatever, that always colors because equity or the decision makers that are getting the residual are always uh, sort of needing enough upside. So it basically feeds the sort of love of risk and leverage in banking. It kind of captured it, capture it. This anything but equity is like, you know, I want, I want to be in a position where I'm kind of juicing up the most. So they love leverage, and that leverage is like as little your skin in the game or little, as little equity money could have levered up to, to, to get lots of, you know, so return on the upside. And let's not think about the downside, please. So, Francis, I thought I'd bring you in here. I mean, this anything but equity thing, is that something that you feel is, is a problem as well with the banking sector, especially like in the UK and in Europe? Yeah, I do, actually. Um, I agree broadly with what Anati and that's saying, really. The return on equity thing is very interesting because it, what I was thinking when, when you were saying that, Annette, was that um, one of the reasons for the we want a high return on equity and let's not think about the downside is, I suspect, because even now there is this assumption that the downside risk is limited because that's in, when push comes to shove with the big, big bank, they're still basically expecting to be bailed out. And they're, being, they're expecting to be bailed out because effectively the regulators are um, not really creating a sort of environment which encourages more capital raising of their own will i mean how how about the um the cocoa um phenomenon hmm. i think we're being on, on... slightly unfair to, to, to the regulators here actually I, I was thinking about this in relation to barclays for example where the pra has been increasing capital requirements perhaps not as much as we would like and there is this still you know the, the whole question of risk weighting and things like that but they have been increasing capital requirements and um Anthony Jenkins of Barclays turns around and says, well, if I have to raise more capital, I might lend less, which is, in a way... It's a threat. Yeah. Oh. And, and, and the, the PRA, was Andrew Bailey was not at all happy about that. And I would support Andrew Bailey on this. If, to me, if they actually have more equity and the same amount of borrowing, then they're actually able to lend more, not less. Exactly. I mean, the thing about this disingenuous uh, kind of threat is that, especially for the biggest banks, lending is not, they're not even constrained at all in lending. I mean, they're not even lending, JP Morgan doesn't even lend its deposits. 
<laughs> so what's the problem now? It doesn't, it, you know, it, it, the London whale was from excess deposits. So what are we even talking about then? The deposits only half their debt. So how is more equity preventing them from lending? They're not lending anyway, you know, with all the money exactly. that they have. They lend, you know, 700 billion in JP Morgan out of the balance sheet, depending on how you do the accounting, at least three times bigger than that, maybe more. So there's no problem. And again, if they have, you know, retained earnings or anything, they can lend. Nothing stops them from lending. So this notion that that somehow more equity prevents them from lending is just really kind of pathetic, kind of immediately and contradicts what they do. As, and then they still say it and think they get away with it. I think it's because in a way they're playing to the confusion that exists in people's minds between capital and reserves. Yep. I mean, yep. I've um, heard, for example, the BBC describing capital as being the banks needing to have extra cash. Yep. They, no, it's not. That's the problem. Is that's why they get away with it. It's because nobody understands what we're saying. And it falls. The insidious thing about the confusion is that you kind of wouldn't know that you're confused because there's nothing kind of alerting you. It's kind of a different debate on the reserve side because you could say, oh, you know, there was a whole piece, for example, I think it was in Fortune magazine, talking about Brown Vitter, which is a proposal to have 15% equity for the largest six banks. Yeah. And so the whole essay, the entire essay was about how 15% cash reserve won't save us. Yes, it won't save us if you play with the 85% that you're playing with and you only have 3% equity, you can get wiped out easily. So 15% cash set aside is not where the action is. The action is can you how much losses can you absorb without getting distressed or failing. So the, the, the entire article was about the wrong things. This is how ridiculous this gets. Talking about the misconception about capital versus, say, cash reserves, where do you think it comes from? And um, is it because we fundamentally misunderstand how a bank run uh, happens and where the fragility actually is in the banking system? Maybe, Anna, maybe you could start with uh, giving your view on that. Well, I mean, one of the things is that they have, I'm not sure how they started this use of the word capital in this context, because it's not used like this anywhere else at all. So the word capital, just people don't understand what that means. But some of it has to do with the verbs that they use around it. And I'm not, again, not sure exactly how it started being that way, but saying hold or set aside. So once you say that, then it's set aside. Now, there is some accounting issues about this. So I think some of the terminology, sometimes they say capital reserves. And I don't know that much accounting, but I think some of it is just a confusion about terminology. But in many people's mind, and that includes people who are really actually involved in the debate, and certainly politicians and others, you would have you could have hours of discussion. And I've witnessed this even in the U.S. Congress, where it appears that most people in the room have no idea what we're talking about, that they do think that it's cash reserved. I mean, I talk to people in very high places sometimes off the record, and they say it is pervasive. It's absolutely shocking. Then there are other things that are shocking, but this starting point is not in the right place. We're not even having the, the debate about the same thing. So then there is the other misunderstandings, uh, Izzy, which have to do with the economics of funding. And that, mm -hmm. too, I discovered is really absolutely shocking in banking. So it's basically as if you had like a denial of the basic principles. We're talking bread and butter finance that we teach in every single course. I just checked yesterday a textbook in banking that we've already slammed for being wrong on this. And it's a famous person who was, you know, in Squamnik Group was the president of the research in the New York Fed. It's absolutely shocking. I can't even say it. Mishkin, his book. Now it's 2013 10th edition book. 
says that there is a trade-off. If you have more capital, you'll be safer, but your ROE will go down as if ROE is an objective. And God forbid, you should have sort of too little ROE, you know, get that capital down, so your ROE. And that is just the wrong objective because, you know, as I said, the ROE thing has to be unpacked to ask, what do you mean by that? Do you mean if, the, if it's about the actual ROE, then... It, on the downside, that statement is just false. If you have more equity or more capital, you will be protected on the downside. So if you don't make money to cover your interest, which is, of course, rare, but it can happen and somebody's got to bear that, then, in fact, you'll have less negative return when you have more equity. So your return will be higher, less negative on the downside. So this is just on the point-by-point -point comparison. They're just looking at the upside at, at the time, at the magnified upside when you go above when you pay your debts and then the, every dollar is yours on a small base. That's the leverage effect. But otherwise, you know, risk and return in, in uh, when you talk about average ROE or required ROE, you should make, you know, more ROE relative to your risk. There's no point talking about risk and return as an objective because anybody can get returned by taking risk in financial markets and you can do stupid things and still get on average return that's kind of high but not as high as you should get so when they subject shareholders equity holders to risk are they actually compensating them appropriately do they have a sort of an alpha do they do better than they're supposed to do given the risk they subject them to i think equity investors in banks discovered that they didn't do that well uh, on I the think, banks relative to the, the risk that they borne, even with all the bailouts i think that's an important point and point in that actually that that the high return on equity is an indicator of risk and that in yep. insisting that the ROE must remain high That's and that therefore we mustn't raise more, have more <laughs> equity, um, exposing shareholders to unnecessary risk. Exactly. It, it, you know, if shareholders wanted less risk, they could mix the equity with, that's what we teach in finance. You can mix any portfolio you want. So if, you know, if this equity is leveraged, you can make it less leveraged by just buying the debt and proportions and you get back the unlevered firm. So that's the kind of thing we do, homemade leverage. You can jack it up by buying on margin and you could, you know, tone it down by mixing it with with treasuries or something. You can get a profile yeah. of risk return. You want to diversify all of that we teach. But for a corporation to choose to maximize return, that's just not a business model unless, of course, somebody else bears the downside, which seems to be the fixation in banking is like, let's lever up, let's juice up because that's good for us at the expense of others. That doesn't create value even for a corporation, let alone for society, except for squeezing subsidies out of somebody else and then creating fragility in the system. So all of a sudden we have fragility because the bankers want it. Speaking of fragility in the system, I mean, Francis, you've written recently about um, how the nature of bank runs is totally misunderstood. Um, maybe bring that, what we're writing in that post, uh, into the conversation, because I thought it was very enlightening. Well, in a way, what drove it was the whole discussion about Glass-Steagall, because to me, there's way too much focus in considering what to do about banks on the asset side of the balance sheet, and nowhere near enough on liabilities, which I think in that ties in with some of the things you've been saying, that the fragility comes from the comes from the funding mix and that bank runs, in a way, happen when the concerns about the funding mix, the level of equity and the quality of the assets add up to a fairly poisonous mixture, 
which frightens people into saying, I don't want to leave my money in here anymore. So they remove it. And it doesn't actually matter what the, what, who it is who's pulling the funds. And with Lehman, it was money market funds. It doesn't matter. With Northern Rock, it was a retail run. It does, doesn't matter who's pulling their funds. The point is that the fragility in the system has caused people to panic. And that's what happens in a bank run. So what we would like to do, I guess, is get, get to a point where the chances of that happening are much less. But to me, that means concentrating far more on the liability side of the balance sheet and not worrying so much about what kind what the asset mix is. Um, you know, if you if your funding mix is more stable, um, then you can take greater risks. Exactly. Anna, what do you think of that? What's going on in the economics of funding of banks is a sort of immaturity rate risk. You put the deposits in. In other words, they're not normal creditors. Normal creditors worry about priorities and they worry about what will happen in an event of default. Bank creditors just rely essentially on their ability to run away in time yeah. because it's so. And so the the, the that becomes. So it's not just that there is so much debt, but it's really this fragile debt that they have. And and it's partly because you can only borrow from the next person, given how much debt you have, by making them feel that they will be paid. So it's a race of borrowing because everybody needs a collateral or needs to uh, to know that they're only there for an hour and they can get out essentially before the other guy. So it becomes this sort of crowding out of the debt. And that is very, very fragile because, as Francis said, it if it's not backed up and people get nervous, then they all will want to take their money out at the same time. Now you can get an inefficient runs, but you see, that's why we have liquidity supports as long as it's a pure liquidity support. So you don't want an inefficient liquidation of the bank, but you want to avoid the situation in which it's not prudent for a central bank to support the occasional liquidity need. And, uh, and the reason is because fundamentally people think the bank is weak and there is a reason to run because they, you know, might get a haircut or they'll certainly pull out if it's a money market funds and just go elsewhere because they can. And Francis, I guess this applies both to retail banks and investment banks equally. There's not really a reason that it should just apply to one and not the other. No, absolutely not. I mean, the, the point I was trying to make was that in actual fact, every bank run without exception always involves re, um, commercial banks, always, because it involves payment systems and the commercial yep. banks are the gateway to the payment systems. So you can't have an, a run on an investment bank without a knock-on effect to the banks through which the money is actually moving. So you always have to provide liquidity support when you've got any sort of run on any financial institution. It doesn't matter what it is. The idea we can kind of cherry-pick them is just not realistic. Well, the thing is that there's so many forms of sort of quasi, you know, deposit. So when, you know, the, this invention of the repo as sort of your modern day fancy deposit is just sort of a, a reincarnation of, of the notion and the money market funds themselves coming to be very destabilizing. So instead of me giving the, the money to my bank as deposits, I'll juice up a little bit my return and I'll give it to the money market fund and the money market fund will give it to uh, to the bank. And then, of course, there are two ways to run. The money market fund will run on the bank and I will run on my money market funds. Exactly. And both of them we saw. So you kind of get more fragility, more layers of interconnectedness in a more, in a more system that's more knotted up as we have it and has so much debt and so much short-term debt within it. So they lend to one another. So there's financial, yeah. a financial institution like money market fund kind of in between the end investors and the banks. Another yes. buddy. And we can't, it, but it's still the same flow of funds. It's just got extra layers in it. 
So pretending that you can somehow provide liquidity support if there is a run directly on a bank, but mm-hmm. not if there's a run on a money market fund, when that money is going to end up in the banks, going through the banks anyway, is kind of misunderstanding the nature of the flow of funds through the banking system. Liquidity support is it has to be provided when you have that kind of catastrophic situation. Um, the question is how you stop yourself getting in that situation in the first exactly. place. Exactly. How do you, so this whole notion that it's only liquidity and plumbing is mm. you get a lot more of those problems and their problems are much, much harder if you are nearer insolvencies because yeah. then it feeds upon itself. As long as you're kind of safe and in a range that's a lot safer, then you won't have liquidity problems or they're easy to solve because okay. they're temporary and not, you know, and there won't be the incentives to run as much because people are confident and trust each other. The interbank market is failing because the more you say, you know, I'm going to let you fail and, you know, you make, the, the, they don't trust one another. So the key to that is to make them stronger so they can trust each other and not just go to central banks. There, there is also the question, I mean, I know we, you, we've seen also the whole question of sort of depositors running and um, the increased fragility, I suppose, of um, deposit funding. Um, now that we know, uh, Cyprus set the precedent, that large deposits may not be um, taxpayer-backed anymore. So we may see more likelihood of fragility in deposit funding as well. Well, I mean, somebody's going to bear the downside. Even in the U.S., I believe that uh, Washington Mutual's larger deposits, of course, now we have a limit of 250000 they were creditors. And so yeah. the thing is, deposit, if you call something a deposit, it still is a, a, a debt to the bank. So you need to either have sort of a preference, a deposit preference or some seniority, or, you know, otherwise what happens when they're, when they're insolvent, who bears those losses? How do you rank them? And so it becomes it becomes an issue if the bank is weak. Uh, you know, people have to, some investors somewhere, and not everybody can be perfectly safe. And in the case of Cyprus, they promised really unrealistic returns for being riskless. You know, 4% riskless, you really sort of can't get that mm. anywhere. You know, in, in that Europe. sense, do you think the fact that we do have insurance on deposits in a way makes banks uh, kind of more at ease at taking risks because they know that um, because the deposits are guaranteed through the guarantee systems, well, you know they don't really have to worry about it like uh, like they would do if um, if the if the deposits were not guaranteed. So here's the thing about it: deposit insurance puts you already in a position where the banks have creditors and they come and go who don't care about risk at all, like normal creditors would. Now I'm not saying that we shouldn't have deposit insurance because I don't want to worry about what Wells Fargo does with my money. But I was very alarmed when the CEO of Wells Fargo told uh, your chief correspondent and the chief banking editor in the U.S., Tom Braithwaite, in an interview that was front page here in the U.S., uh, the following. He said, I believe, that he has uh, he was objecting to funding with long-term debt. He thought that was expensive. God forbid that exuberantly, you know, luxurious equity that's just so expensive uh he said i have a lot of self-funded he said self-funded deposits and therefore now is the key statement i don't have a lot of debt i just about fell off my chair what? mr stump my deposit with you is 
your debt. You seem to have forgotten because deposit money mm. is so easy for you to get that you sort of forgot that you actually owe this money to the depositors. Now, because I don't move my money because of deposit insurance, I mean, that's where you see what you just said, Izzy, that, you know, the depositors are sticky and they stay there. And that's be partly because of deposit insurance. So that does not mean that deposit insurance is bad because we do want a payment system and we want a lot of people not to have to worry because they can't actually monitor what's done with their deposits. Instead, we have regulators who must counter those distorted incentives that come with having such easy money to play with, such easy debt. They, you know, don't pay a lot of a lot, but they may give you ATM, you know, services and other things. So you don't need a lot of interest rate because it's just kind of a road system, a payment system. But the fact that it's debt and the fact that nobody cares about the risk because of insurance just means that somebody's got to worry about it for the depositors. And that's, always, of course, the deposit insurance corporations here. In countries that have deposit insurance without sort of strong supervision, that's exactly, in some sense, the problem in banking, is that creditors are not worrying enough about risk and regulators are failing to replace them. I think that's that's very true. Um, I think there's a bit of a of a, a reality disconnect as far as depositors are concerned. I mean, I know from my conversations with people how difficult people find it to understand that banks are not there to keep their money safe. They honestly believe and if that banks exist to keep their money safe. And I'm going, no, when you when you put money in a bank, you're lending it to the bank. Yep. Um, and I think there's a general lack of understanding of that, which sort of begs the question about whether even if you didn't have an explicit deposit insurance system, like for example, New Zealand doesn't, whether in fact you've got an implicit one anyway, just because the whole Western system of banking, you know, the economies yeah. have become so incredibly dependent upon bank payment systems, particularly. Well, yes. the presumption is that you have to have, um, you know, you have to have your money somewhere. If you don't have it in the bank, it's going to be under your mattress, which is a different type of risk. So in a way, this is, this is a... Uh, this is a belief that is generated because of no no alternative safe asset that you can put your money in, which is zero yielding. I mean, so you're kind of like forced into the banking system in a way. The thing the thing is that people like these illusions. People like it's it's a sort of a basic fundamental yield chasing because we want the money safe and we want returns. Yeah. All of a sudden, we want returns, you know, and safety, and re- and and re- we want returns more than the government can who you know, which can print the money in principle. In other words, all of a sudden we all need, so money market funds are like that. So here they ran uh, and they created all these fragilities, for example, as Francis described, the Lehman situation. And we still, you know, five years later, they're still saying they're mutual funds, even though they have no ability to absorb losses below a dollar, but they promise a dollar and have a checkbook in this country. So they are banks and they act like banks and quack like banks, but Mm -hmm. they want to get also returns. And so that's where you get the problem. The people sort of think the bank will will keep it safe and they want to find ways to get return on this money. And I think people sort of thought that the deposits were, you know, were for payment and that you really can't have it both ways, that if you're getting high return, there's sort of got to be risk somewhere in there or something is wrong. There isn't the, free, the return without risk kind of on average illusion. Then, um, you know, we might we might be able to straighten this out. And, and in a way, it's kind of um, forcing people to using different types of online payment structures that um, are being provided by the private sector instead instead of the banking sector, because really you're not getting yield 
um, in your deposits anyway, but you want the electronic sort of convenience of having your, your money in a sort of in the virtual realm. Um, and banks aren't catering to that and neither is the government. So that creates these loopholes that, you know, concepts like Bitcoin are exploiting. Um, and that's not necessarily a good thing because that's not regulated at all. It's still the case that, uh, I mean, we might have like a major, major meltdown, but it still is the case that uh, the respons- you know, responsible governments would not uh, probably let, you know, major banking systems c- collapse on, on, on the payment system and all of that. But there is this huge concern of all the deposit-like things that are just yeah. growing too big. One of the flags I have is on the exemption of repos from uh, bankruptcy procedures. And that sort of enables every cre- creditor of the bank, including on repos, to, not, to just not worry because they own the collateral legally and can walk away with it with nobody, no bankruptcy court able to grab it from them. And that just basically, again, enables to keep, keep, keep borrowing while saying, oh, this is all useful, this is all useful, no matter what is sort of the distortions involved. And, I, and I, you know, there's not enough equity in the world to back it up, which is obviously ridiculous because the need for payment system is is there, but it's relative to the wealth of the world is still should, you know, can get out of control. So you can get excessive production of sort of so-called liquidity because everybody loves liquid, other things equal except for the slippery problem that liquidity can evaporate just this sort of run thing is you know things are as liquid and as safe as the issuer of that debt and as the markets functioning so when markets freeze you lose the liquidity so just when you kind of need it yeah so that's the problem so, I mean, you've brought up repo, and I just thought uh, that book brings to mind the uh, recent note that JP Morgan put out on how repo markets are likely to react to higher leverage ratios. And I, um, you know, I'm, I understand both, both your, you know, both Francis and yourself have a strong opinion there. And, and at, <laughs> you, you particularly think that's a bit of, you know, that's not Well, it's as you wake up in the morning, and what, what will they think about today? So it's similar, yeah. you know, it's a fancier version it's of a, saying... Yeah, yeah, another yeah. banker myth, yeah. Yes. So, so it's basically a variant on the claim that if, uh, if I need to have more equity, then I can't take deposits, or I will take fewer deposits. Why would that be? No, I didn't that even make touch sense. them. Why, why don't you retain your earnings instead of paying them out? Then you can keep your repos. How did I conceptually prevent you from doing repos? I didn't even touch them. If I say to you, okay, why don't you raise equity? If you're a viable bank, just grow. Just, I didn't even constrain their size, even though it's monstrous, just because I know that if they have to pay properly for their funding, they would probably shrink to better, more efficient sizes. And right now they're just growing too inefficiently. But, you know, just for the argument, I say, fine, you know, if you love your 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 repos so much, then, you know, just back up things, you know, there's plenty of equity money, even if you invest it in treasuries, you know, your return on equity will replace, will reflect what you do with the fund, like everybody else. So if you go and do some safe things with the fund, the investors can, can lever that up if they want or not. And here we've been in a world of normal finance as opposed to made up finance. Yes, I'm broadly in agreement with that, actually. Um, I didn't quite get the repo thing either. I can't see how a repo market is destroyed just by an increase in leverage ratio, really. 
things just might cost a bit more. They can say these things and they get away with them because mm. nobody understands the words and nobody can unpack the argument. But that's just, they just, you know, keep coming up with variations on on basically, you know, flawed claims on this issue. I think the issue about it paying, paying more for funding is, is a fair one. But in a way, that's all part of the making banks less fragile and less dependent upon, if you like, hidden um, yep. subsidies, hidden guarantees yep. that, that the whole of society pays one way yep. or another. I mean, whether in a way, we want them to, pay, to take, bear more cost in their funding because that is actually the realistic cost the right price, of this exactly. bank uh, rather than the, the artificially reduced price because society is, is providing a hidden guarantee and bearing the costs exactly. when it all goes so pear The craziness of it. Is that is that here we kind of want you know say we want cheap credit, but we get distorted credit. We get too much. We get too little. We get unstable credit. We get them to prefer you know high ROEs instead of business lending. I mean the reason they don't do business lending is they don't want to. There's no Absolutely. problem with it if it's a good loan and at the right price you'll make it. You know positive net present value projects there you can bring value to yourself and to society by doing things. All companies do that. So it's like what is your business anyway? So. We get a distorted organizations by sort of subsidizing them in the most insidious way by subsidizing their harmful, excessive borrowing. So even if you go want to give subsidies to small business lending, I mean, you almost give it directly to the businesses if you want to subsidize them, not Absolutely. via the, the, the subsidizing of the blanket subsidizing of bank borrowing to do whatever they want. Oh, yeah, it's that's very true. Thing. Yeah. I mean, business lending, small business lending is expensive. Um, small businesses are a risky proposition generally. Yeah. At the moment, we have a lot of banks with an awful lot of risky loans sitting on their balance sheets that they're not doing terribly that's well fine, at getting rid of. Nothing. They don't want to take on more risk. Therefore, they don't want additional business risky lending. I can totally sympathize with their point of view. But if we need to increase business lending, which is, I think, coming back to Vince Cable and the Taliban, um, is where he's coming from on this. Is for goodness sake, government do something yeah. um, directly with bus- with small businesses rather yeah. than uh, accepting banks' arguments that they should be subsidised to do it. The, the other thing about business lending is, okay, you know, if you do a lot of business lending, if there are different businesses, I mean, there's some diversification that you get. So that's kind of standard banking is you, like insurance, you know, you insure lots of drivers and only some of them have accidents or something. So it kind of averages out. So so we, we kind of want that. So the question is, okay, our business is so correlated. In fact, real estate is very correlated. Yes. So when you lend, when you make a lot of mortgages, they tend to, you know, fail at the same time. So it's like, well, how can you get rid of the risk? You know, the you just averages, average it out. But I mean... The question is whether making the business loan, there is sort of whether the the costs of funding in the economy are sort of what determines them in general. What we teach in finance is that the 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 cost of, of, of funding is sort of determined by the risk of what you're trying to fund and by interest rates in the economy, and that's kind of all. And so if you need intermediaries to fund, like you need the banks to channel the, the money to the small businesses because we don't want sort of peer-to-peer because they're sort of monitoring technologies and credit worthiness and all of that. I mean, that's where they can bring values, and that's where supposedly there could be business. So think micro-lending. I mean, it got to the mm. ridiculous point that I was reading in the paper that there were micro-lenders coming to New York to lend to restaurants because banks were too busy banks aren't doing, doing it. more fun things than that. Mm. So, in other words, you know, what, the business of banking has gotten so distorted that that the kinds of things where they can actually potentially bring value, just pricing it correctly. In other words, is it a loan that just shouldn't be made by at any cost, or is it a loan that it should be made at the right cost? I mean, they charge a lot of they they certainly lend a lot to individual and credit card lending. 
and it's exorbitant rates and they get people highly indebted and now municipalities too i've been saying you know that's uh, for poor risk waiting that just wait the crisis will come from municipalities and, and it's probably true this we started happen seeing detroit, detroit and all of that yeah. because there's overlending to municipalities there's overlending to anything that has very low risk weights like which is to be honest similar to what we saw in eurozone which yep, is the exactly. same thing very very low risk weightings um, or across zero, the, zero or risk zero. rate well the sovereign debt it was risk zero right. risk rating was which is completely ridiculous um, and 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 not paying attention to pricing because these these things they, there were differences in the interest rates between the different yep. um, the different sovereigns that should have been paying that. attention. The market the, the market pricing even with hidden subsidies and guarantees yep. did indicate something there. Um, yep. I, mean, the, I think the, that thing... there are two really interesting things that are coming uh, coming out as a result of this conversation. Well, the first the first theme really is that. We've already discussed the fact that the savers in the system are falsely presuming that deposits should be yielding anyway and that anyone has a right to put their money in a bank, expect it to be safe, and for there to be a yield. But then on the other side, we have banks not taking risk because effectively there aren't enough sort of safe lending options to guarantee those demands for safe yield. So um, given the fact that we haven't got banks lending, given the constraints that we've just discussed, I mean, what are banks good for nowadays anyway? I mean, is there, are we talking about a fundamental shift? I, I mean, can the banking say, sector actually even be saved if these sorts of constraints can't, can't get resolved? Let me, let me step back for a second to answer, to answer your question, Izzy. There is no problem taking risk, and there's no actually lending is not a risky as risky as some other investments in the economy. In Silicon Valley and in innovation, in technology of, of drugs, in in all kinds of things, enormous risks are taken, and these risks are you know loans pay you interest unless you know and you, the, your risk is interest rates changed or the person defaults or something like that. But I mean, as investments go, lending shouldn't is not that risky in the end of the day. The problem is what money do you use it for? Do you use to lend? Okay. So if you use, so the question is, is there a loan to be made? And if there is at an appropriate rate for that loan, why wouldn't it? So we, on one hand, see a lot of lending by the banks, as I said, you know, so, so they, so, so I think that the distortions in their view of what's useful to do already themselves have to do with themselves being too overly indebted, too leveraged. Because from the perspective of a highly leveraged person, you are in a sort of debt overhang situation where you won't invest in something because there's not enough benefit to you and it benefits your creditors at your expense. So from a perspective of having you know very low equity, think of it as owning a house with very little equity or underwater, you don't want to put a renovation in the house if you think you might default. In other words, the equity, the residuals, they basically cannot renegotiate with the creditors the funding of the new investment. But if the new investment is, is sort of good investment but doesn't have a lot of upside for them, they're doing it sort of on behalf of the creditors, but they have to fund it. So there isn't enough for to cover them. So that's a fundamental debt overhang problem that the banks are constantly in. So if you want them to make more business loans, they should be like, you know, 30%, 40% equity. So then they will benefit from the from the upside of that, as opposed to just ensure their their uh, their creditors when they do that, so that the the investment looks more uh, more profitable or more attractive to them. I do actually think there's quite a fundamental um, conflict of expectations between what savers expect 
and what um, the economy requires in terms of risk lending, um, which has been a problem for a long time, but actually it is particularly acute in the universal banking model where the banks are trying to do both. So, which perhaps is a potential strength of the UK of the US system where it is dis- disintermediated to some extent. It's interesting it's been going back the other way. I know there's been quite a bit of discussion about you know, where savers require absolute safety that, you know, from where I sit, they should not be earning anything on safety, but on deposits, they want to be completely safe and they should be charged for services. And it may be that the bank will, banks will go in that direction. But I know there's been discussions about how much equity there should be to back risk back risk lending. I know Matthew Klein, for example, has been arguing that um, all risk lending should be done entirely from own equity. I know Miles Kimball has been talking about 50% yeah. equity. And I think in that you've been talking about 25-30% haven't you? Ish. I mean, this numbers issue, and they always like think it's a weak point that you don't have a number. Mm. I mean, these numbers depend on denominators and on exactly how sure. you count, and is it about accounting? So the numbers are just, fro- you know, just have lots of issues around them. So what do we even exactly mean by these numbers? And they do have to somehow, in a broad way, reflect the risk because if you had no risk, of course, then. Uh, then there's no kind of problem in principle. You're just kind of being a safe deposit box or you or you're mm. like a coat deposit that you just give back the person the same bill that they gave you or something, you know. So so the question is, are you just circulating bills or are you doing something? Now, our, our belief is that it's too extreme to go to 100% sort of, you know, reserve and then, you know, everything is just, it's just really in a safe deposit box, that there is some room to uh, to channel deposit money into some there's some maturity transformation there where you're taking the money that people require right away into money, into investments that are not as short term. But um, and we say 20 to 30 just to kind of be minimal. So I'm more in the 40 percent mm-hmm. kind of. But, you know, again, if you if you had a way to kind of <laughs> sort of talk about what the institution does and what numbers kind of appropriate for it as a crude measure. In other words, do they have a way to scale up their risk? For investment banks, I would put it at 50% because they are able to scale up their risk. And and, and so you see, the problem is that in if if you were to say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm just backing up the deposits 100% uh, with cash and charging for services, and then I leave the rest of the world, then precisely as you said, Francis, what does the rest of the world actually looks like? And people will start saying, well, I mean, there's only so much that they will put in a negative return, you know, deposits. Mm-hmm. So they want, so you sort of go down that slippery slope. And we think there is a way, uh, maybe it's too idealistic, but there is a way to make sense out of this system. If we just correct the, the most, if we just don't live as dangerously, because one of the things that's underappreciated about having so little equity is the deleveraging multiple. In other words, if you lose a little bit, just, just, how much you have to sell to deleverage immediately. And that's the sort yeah. of fire sales that we see. So if you just did a different place altogether, so you are at like 30% on a regular basis, once you kind of got there, one of the things that we will see is we may have a too big a system. So these subsidies are translated into a bloating industry. And one of the things that we say that you have to do right now is to actually to, to scale back on this industry, you basically have to recognize zombie banks of which they populate Europe and just Huge kind numbers. of wind them down so that you have kind of viable remainder industry yeah. that can actually survive. Because when there are so many of them, they also kind of 
fight for resurrection and taking risk is kind of the only way to survive in this in this environment. So you want to. It's in. it's absolutely true, and and um, I re- I'm really I mean this conversation could go on for ages, and I think we've done a good job at debunking a number of myths. But as it happens, we ourselves are running out of funding right now, oh, unfortunately, <laughs> wrapped things up. So I'm gonna have I'm I'm gonna summarize it, and I, I think we've definitely debunked a lot of the myths. And I want to thank you and Ed for joining us, and um, hopefully you. we can come on again and we can discuss this more. And Francis, the same to you. Thank you so much for uh, participating. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Pleasure. Bye bye. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.